podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, two for the podcast on Friday, March the 18th, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you'd normally be geo-blocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Go to LibertyShield.com and use the code ROUTER50 to get 50% off at checkout. That's LibertyShield.com and router 50 to get your Liberty Shield VPN router half price. Global delivery, no worries. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider with Trustpilot, five-star ratings across the board. Check out libertyshield.com. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find now on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks, we had one game in the Premier League last night, and somehow, somehow, Everton won a game of football in a game in which they were thoroughly outclassed, but Newcastle just could not find a way to put the ball in the back of the net. Everton won Newcastle nil. Alex Awobi with the only goal of the game in the 99th minute. That's right, the 99th minute. The reason there was so much stoppage time, the reason they played 105 minutes of football is because some clown zip-tied himself by the troth to the goalpost. He was trying to protest. I think it was oil, but he pretty ran onto the pitch and zip-tied himself to the goalpost. And then for some reason, they got a bolt cutters rather than like a Stanley knife or something that you'd normally use to cut a zip-tie. They got a bolt cutters and there are some wonderful memes going around of a gentleman, I would say, in his mid to late 50s, possibly early 60s, having tremendous trouble with this enormous set of bolt cutters as he tries to cut a zip tie. Um, Alan found himself sent off on 83 minutes for, I think, a reckless challenge on Alan St. Maximum. Newcastle were breaking. Alan had no intention of playing the ball, didn't get close to playing the ball. Now, he was initially given a yellow card. The VAO review led to the red card. Everton have said they're going to appeal it. If that appeal is not successful, they're going to appeal against it being a three-match ban and try and get that reduced. I have a feeling they won't be successful in the first appeal, but they may be successful in that second appeal, and it may just be a one-match ban for Alan. But this was a huge win for Everton. 
absolutely massive, something they needed desperately. It gives them a three-point cushion on Watford and, more importantly, a four-point cushion on Burnley. They've now played the same amount of games as Burnley, but that four-point advantage feels like a lot at this point in the season. And with Leeds having won at the weekend, with Brentford having won their last two, with Watford winning at the weekend, Everton really did need to put some points on the board because, as we've discussed previously, their run-in is horrendous. And how it currently stands, they will play West Ham away in their next league game, then Burnley away before Manchester United at home, Leicester home, Liverpool away, Chelsea home, Leicester away. They've got a re- they've got a rearranged game against Palace to go in somewhere. They get Brentford at home, which is definitely winnable. Um, there's and Watford is to be rescheduled as well, and then they play Arsenal away on the final day. So Watford and Watford away is very very difficult. Given Watford are still scrapping for their lives, but there's there's likely a point to be taken there. Burnley's the exact same, but again, there's likely a point that can be taken there. And if they beat Brentford at home, that should be enough. Given how inept the teams below them are. And Everton are in a situation where if they stay up, it will be more to do with how poor the other teams have been rather than anything good that they do themselves. But if they can pick up five more points, that gets to 30 points. And at the moment, I'm struggling to see Watford or Burnley even get into that. So, you know, it may well be that we say goodbye to Burnley this season, which I will be surprised by because Sean Dyche is a really good manager, but they had such a bad start. And in truth, they've only won three games all season. So maybe they deserve to go down. They've got City at home and Everton at home in the next two games. Then they go to Norwich. West Ham away after that. Then Southampton at home, Wolves at home, Watford away, Villa at home, Spurs away, and then Newcastle at home on the last day. I mean, they could beat Everton. They could beat Norwich. They could beat Watford. They could beat Burnley. Or they could beat um, Newcastle, rather. But at the same time, they could just as easily draw or lose each of those games. You know, they've they've just been so poor. Surprisingly poor. Yeah, big points for Everton. Massive points for Everton. And very, very fortunate points for Everton because last night you could see the crowd really getting edgy, especially on the red card. And if Newcastle had scored, there may well have been a pitch invasion. Everton's social media accounts came out afterwards and said, you really had this place rocking tonight. And I'm not sure what game they were watching because the crowd was teetering on the brink of turning on that team last night at different stages. Everton didn't play particularly well. One player who did was Anthony Gordon, but by God, that is the worst diver in the Premier League. Eight times last night, he threw himself to the floor looking for something. He also went, screaming at the referee when Seamus Coleman lost the ball in the box and threw himself to the ground. That's in in the early part of the move that led to the Elan red card. 
Anthony Gordon needs to get his act together because it's unacceptable for him to be hurling himself on the ground so frequently. Uh, that is the Premier League last night. That is how we stand today. Newcastle will be disappointed, undoubtedly, but they've given themselves enough cushion where they should be fine anyway. And they've still got some games coming up where they'll take points, but they get Tottenham away next, then Wolves at home, then Leicester at home, then Palace at home. Three home games in a row at this point in the season is very favourable, even though they're difficult games. They get Norwich away, game they should win. They get Liverpool home, City away, Arsenal home, difficult three games, and then Burnley away on the final day. So they're going to look to pick up some points in that run from Newcastle to Norwich. Three home games and then probably the easiest game they have left, and that will keep them safe. Newcastle, I think, will be fine. We can take them out of the mix for relegation at this point. I think it is down to Leeds, Everton, Watford and Burnley as to which two will join Norwich. Uh, moving on then, the Champions League draw for the quarterfinals and semifinals has been made. And what we get is very, very interesting. So, quarterfinal one, Chelsea against Real Madrid. Real will have the home leg second big advantage. Manchester City versus Atletico Madrid. Atleti will have the home leg second. Again, big advantage. And for City, they play Liverpool in between those two games against Atletico Madrid. So that's a very difficult week all of a sudden. Villarreal versus ben, versus Bayern Munich. Bayern will have the second leg at home. And then Benfica versus Liverpool. Liverpool will have the second leg at home. You'd have to say Bayern and Liverpool got the favourable draws. The top half is definitely more difficult. The semi-finals then will be the winner of Chelsea Real versus the winner of City Atletico. And the winner of Liverpool Bayern versus the winner, sorry, Liverpool Benfica versus the winner of Bayern Villarreal. You would expect it will be a Liverpool Bayern semi final, barring a calamity for one of those teams. The other one, though, is far harder to predict. Far, far harder. Chelsea Real is the tie of the round. I said before, I think there's five teams that can win it. They're two of them, City or another. And now only one of them can reach the final. Bayern versus Liverpool, that's the other two. And again, one of them will reach, but they only have to go through one to get there, whereas Chelsea will have to go through potentially three great teams to win this competition again. They'll have to go through Real, potentially City, and then Bayern or Liverpool. That's a very difficult path for Chelsea. That's the hardest path anyone could have gotten. I think Real will cause Chelsea problems. But if Chelsea can just hold firm defensively, as they have done frequently under Tuchel, they should have enough, just about enough, to take advantage of some holes in that Real defence. City will be heavy favourites to beat Atletico, but Atletico were just a horrible team to play against. Bayern should advance, but Lewandowski's knee injury cast a bit of a cloud over things at the minute. And then Liverpool would be strong favourites to beat Benfica. Those games take place the 5th and 6th of April with the second leg, the 12th and 13th. And then the semi-finals will be the 26th and 27th of April with the second legs, the 3rd and 4th of May. The Europa League draw has also been made. 
And we have RB Leipzig versus Atalanta. That's the tie of the round. I think that's going to be a really exciting couple of games. Leipzig got the, the bye through to this stage. Atalanta knocked out Bayer Leverkusen. Back for more German fun. Uh, Eintracht Frankfurt versus Barcelona. You would have to strongly fancy Barcelona to get through there. Eintracht are having a poor season domestically. Barca haven't been great, but they've been a lot better under Xavi. West Ham against Lyon. Very difficult for West Ham, but, I mean, what a result for them last night. Knocking off Sevilla. 2-0 at home. Absolutely fantastic. And a brilliant moment again for Yarmolenko. Declan Rice, by the way, what a performance. What an absolutely heroic performance in midfield for them. Huge, huge performance from a big-time player. Um, West Ham Leon is is difficult, but West Ham will fit, will fancy themselves. Leon are good, not great. They've got a lot of talent. They can be a little bit soft. And then Braga versus Rangers, which, to be fair, is the best draw Rangers probably could have gotten unless they'd landed Eintracht. So Rangers should be confident of getting through. Now, their quarter, their semi-final draw sees the winner of Leipzig at Atalanta play the winner of Braga Rangers. You would fancy whoever comes out of the Leipzig-Atalanta game to make the final. And then the winner of West Ham-Leon against the winner of Eintracht-Barca. So West Ham... Could have to go Sevilla, Leon, Barca to get to a final, but I wouldn't put it past them. And what what an outing that could be if West Ham get to head to the new camp. This is a, I think, a career highlight for David Moyes, getting to the late knockout stages of a major European competition. Considering his European record with Everton wasn't particularly good, and obviously didn't do great with Manchester United as well. This is massive. And, and that last night was absolutely outstanding. Absolutely outstanding performance from West Ham. To a man. And the crowd was unbelievably into it as well. Fair play. Um, the Europa Conference League draw has not yet been made. Oh, it's being made at the moment, I think. Let's see if we can see what's happening. Yes, here we go. Uh, Bodo Glimt will play Roma. Now, they've already played this season, and Bodo walloped Roma. So that's difficult. Feyenoord versus Slavia Prague. Marseille versus PAOK. And Leicester versus PSV Eindhoven. This has not worked well for Leicester. They've gotten the hardest possible path. They'll play PSV. And if they win in the semi-final, they'd play the winner of Bodo versus Roma. And even though Roma did lose heavily to Bodo, I would still fancy them to come through that tie. This is Mourinho we're talking about. So in the two games they played, 
in the group stage, it was a 2-2 draw in Rome, and Bodo beat them 6-1 up in the, the far, 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 far-flung north of Norway. That was in October, and Rome will look a better team now. And I think we'll see Mourinho with a point to prove here. So, yeah. And then Feyenoord Slavia, the winner of that, will play Marseille PAOK. If I was to pick now, I'd suggest a Roman Marseille final, but I wouldn't write off Leicester. PSV will be tough. The Europa League and the Europa Conference League draws will take place, or sorry, quarterfinals will take place the 7th of April and the 14th of April with the semi-finals the 28th of April and the 5th of May. And then the final is in Tirana in Albania on the 25th of May. It's a nice little stadium. That's a tidy little stadium they've got there. The Air Albania Stadium. 22,500 capacity. Looks really, really nice, to be fair. Uh, only recently built, opened in 2019. It's the National Stadium of Albania. Fair play. This is one of the things I do sort of like about this competition, even though I, I think the competition itself is a bit stupid. Uh, the fact that the final will be played in, you know, a, a place where otherwise the final would not be played. Now, it is a bit of a shame in the Europa League that both Sevilla and Betis went out because there was the potential for Sevilla-Betis final in Seville, which would have been incredible. But look, as it stands, that's looking fun. I think West Ham-Leon will be good. I think I think Leipzig-Atalanta will be good. Um, and then the semi-finals are what they are. And then the final, like I say, is in Seville and it's on the 18th of May at 9pm Central European time, 8pm UK time. Yeah. All things considered, these draws have been, I think they've been fun. I think they've worked out well. I think the English clubs will be happy enough with what they've got. Other than Chelsea. I think Chelsea will be a bit a bit annoyed. But um, they deserve to be annoyed. So there is that. Right, we will do the gossip and then we will take our break and come back to Mr. Drinkle and we'll have a chat about the weekend's games. So Barcelona have expressed interest in signing Marcus Rashford. Rashford agreed a £200,000 a week contract at United in 2019, which is due to expire next summer. But obviously he has a year, they have a year option as well. So it will be 2024. Um, I it's come out to the Manchester Evening News. I'd imagine that's come from his agent or somebody close to him because I think people close to him want him out of that club. Cristiano Ronaldo is set to stay at Manchester United next season with Ralph Ranić likely to leave. We can therefore write off Manchester United as competitors in any major competition next season. Arsenal are keen on signing Real Madrid's former Chelsea forward Eden Hazard. I would bet everything I own that they are not. Benfica have placed a £67 million price tag on Darwin Nunes. That's all well and good, but they are in a bad financial situation. 
and I would be willing to bet that they will take 50 for him come summer. 19-year-old Ajax and Netherlands midfielder Ryan Gravenberch could be a target for Manchester United. This is linked to the talk of Ten Hag more than anything. Uh, I don't think he goes there, though. He's a Mina Raiola client, and I do think that once Pogba's gone, United may try and get out of the Mino Raiola business. Chelsea's transfer targets will have will be having doubts about moving to the European champions this summer, an agent has warned. The Blues have been linked with a host of players, including Declan Rice. I think that's correct. I also don't think Chelsea are going to be competing for the same type of players they have been previously. Unless new owners come in and want to make a big splash for a summer, but owners that do that generally tend to do something stupid. Jorginho's priority says, Jorginho's agent says that the priority for the midfielder is to sign a new contract at Chelsea, despite interest from Juventus. All agents say stuff like that. Antonio Conte will not walk away from Tottenham this summer, says Hugo Lloris. The 35-year-old believes the Italian is not the type to give up. Well, I think I agree with that. Um, Divock Origi is set to join AC Milan in the summer, according to the spoofer with the catchphrase, who has stolen that news from other Italian journalists who were reporting it a week ago. Championship leaders Fulham are lining up moves for Liverpool defenders Joe Gomez and Nico Williams. Gomez is rated at £23 million by the Reds, according to the Express. I would bet he's rated at probably double that because he's the best English centre-back and he's 24 years of age. So I would bet he'll cost 40 to £45 million. Uh, Williams, yeah, they're free to have him for £10-12 million. That's no problem. France midfielder Paul Pogba is ready to let his Manchester United contract expire this summer before deciding his next move with Paris Saint-Germain keen on the 29-year-old. No one else is interested. Juventus might become interested, but he'd need to drop his wage demands. Real don't want him, and he may end up going to PSG, which would just be more of a, a circus for the Parisians. Eric Ten Hag is Manchester United's number one target to become the next manager. So we hear, so we hear, but then someone else will say it's Maurizio Pochettino and history suggests it's Maurizio Pochettino and the decision makers at United haven't changed. Atletico Madrid are ready to pay up to 40 million for Matty Cash this summer. Again, it's the spoofer, so you'd say nonsense. Investment firm Atheel Partners have made keeping Thomas Tuchel at Chelsea its priority after submitting a bid to buy the clubs. A lot of bids going in. I'm not really sure of what the process will be on deciding the winning bid. Um, PSG are interested in Michael Edwards. Yeah, they could do it a new sporting director, and he is one of the best, if not the best, in the game. Portugal midfielder Ruben Neves will look to leave Wolves this summer if the club does not qualify for Europe. I mean, these type of things are reductive statements by crap outlets. Newcastle, Arsenal, Manchester United are interested in Moussa Diaby. Moussa Diaby is really, really good, really, really exciting, and I think a lot of clubs will be interested in him. Uh, that is it then. That's the gossip. So we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Young Drinkle and we'll quickly get through 
the four Premier League games and the four FA Cup quarterfinals ahead of us this weekend. See you in a minute. Right, welcome back. So, I am joined by the one and only Mr. Drinkle. How are you, sir? I am drawn against Benfica, Dave. How are you? I am also drawn against Benfica, which is a nice place to be. That nice safe bottom half of the draw, where potentially, potentially, if everything went to plan, we play Benfica, then we play Villarreal, and then we play Atletico Madrid in the final and whoop them. Uh, but we won't get too far ahead of ourselves or go too fanciful. We're, we're definitely losing to Benfica now. <laughs> we're probably losing to Benfica, yeah. Darwin Nunes is going to score a hat-trick in both games, but maybe then we'll buy him in the summer. Um, so that, that would be, you know, some Not silver lining that. for that cloud. Nah, <laughs> Not you, never, you never know. You never know. 22 years of age, goal machine. Goal machine. You can I'd rather have. have the Champions League, to be honest. <laughs> Champions League is a fleeting thing which you forget about. Darwin Nunes could score you... 400 goals across 15 That's years. True. Fine. Um, right, let's move on. Uh, we've got four Premier League games starting tonight and then four FA Cup games. So what have we got? Yeah, so first up we have a Friday night game, which is always fun. We have Wolves against Leeds. Um, yeah, Leeds obviously had the mad game last weekend, whereas Wolves back on track. I, Difficult one for Leeds, but they do need the points still, as you alluded to on the Everton bit. Yeah, very much so. The Everton win last night puts pressure back on Leeds to try and give themselves a bit more breathing room. Uh, no Nelson Semedo for Wolves. Pedro Neto probably going to miss out as well, just having some sort of muscular niggles after the, um, the long-term absence that he had. Huang should be back. Kiana Hoiver is a is a is ruled out with the the injury he picked up but as always as always with Leeds there's just injuries everywhere so junior Firpo is out Leo Gjeld is out they are hopeful that Liam Cooper and Calvin Phillips could return they're back in training so we'll wait and see Rodrigo should be fit Joe Gelhart is a doubt Jamie Shackleton is a doubt, Lewis Bate is a doubt, and Tyler Roberts is done for the season. Um, it's a big, big game for Leeds, but away to Wolves. Wolves are good at home. Wolves are simply a better team than them, obviously. And Wolves need the points as well, because they're trying to stay in the race for top four. They don't want to risk falling further behind. They're five points behind Arsenal. Arsenal do have two games in hand, but they're very difficult games in hand against Tottenham and Chelsea. So they could well lose both of them. Now, they'd still have a five-point advantage and Wolves will want to close that. So a win is a must for them and I'm going to back them to win at home. I'll go with a 2-0 Wolves win. Yeah, I think that should be... I don't want to say easy, but Wolves back in the grind, I think. Yeah, it should be one they should be able to manage. Uh, moving on to Saturday, then, we only have the one Premier League game, but there is an FA Cup game. Villa against Arsenal. Um, this screams to me one that Arsenal 
should win because it's the games they've been winning all season. Whereas we saw midweek the games that Arsenal lose it's just against the good teams. But I mean, even a, would a draw even be that bad for Arsenal? Probably not. But one they should win. I should be aiming to win. Yeah, this one they should be aiming to win. Um, Tommy Asu, the only absentee for them, so they should be pretty much the same team that played against Liverpool. Um, Nakamba is out for Villa. I think it looks like Luca Dini will miss out as well. Douglas Louise and Callum Chambers should be okay. I think we'll see Ezri Konza come back in and start this one for Villa. This is a difficult one for Arsenal because it's away, it's early. Villa are going to be in high spirits because they had that little run of, of three wins on the trot. Now, they obviously lost last time out, but you can't really criticise them too much for losing 2-1 away to a good West Ham team. I think Villa will take a point here. I think Villa could take a point here. I'm going to go for a 1-1 draw. I think Stevie G will set them up to be very aggressive against an Arsenal team that at times can get a little bit sloppy. And we saw Liverpool punish sloppy errors in that game. Liverpool's second goal came from two incidents of Arsenal being really sloppy and really lazy in the defensive duties. So I'm going to go for the 1-1 draw. I think Arsenal will have a tough time dealing with Ramsey breaking from midfield. They'll have a tough time with Coutinho and the pockets of space he picks up. Ollie Watkins, as a physical brute up front, will definitely cause Ben White some issues. And if you get if they're playing Ings as well, his pace and movement is something Gabriel doesn't necessarily like all that much. So I'm going to go for the 1-1. One, one. I think that could be a fun game because I mean, mm. Villa, Villa don't really do defence in midfield. I mean, Odegaard and... And Cole running off the back of David, Lu- David Douglas Louise and um, John McGinn. It should, I think that could be a, a bit of a, a mad one, really, but it should be should be a decent watch. Yeah, I definitely think so. I definitely think that'll be a good game. Of the Premier League games, it's one of the two that I think really stand out as games that should be interesting. And speaking of interest, we're on to our first FA Cup game. This is on the Saturday evening. This kicks off at quarter past five, mm. randomly. Um, is Middlesbrough against Chelsea? And Chelsea are going fanless. I assume they're taking a bus, maybe a mega bus. <laughs> um, but at Middlesbrough already taken two big Premier League scalps. Can it be a third? It's not outside the realms of possibility. I mean, like you said, Chelsea having to bust their way up and not having fans there, not exactly going to be the most luxurious trip for Chelsea, coming off the back of what was a difficult enough European game against Lille. Borough beat United at United on penalties, beat Spurs at home, will have a loud, loud Riverside Stadium behind them. That is a very, very loud stadium when it really gets going, and I think this is the type of game that they'll that, that fan base will be really up for, the chance to take another Premier League scalp. Chelsea have the quality. There's, there's just no comparison between the two squads. Um, Chelsea will be without Chilwell and have Saul out with COVID and then doubts over Andreas Christensen 
Callum Hudson Odoi and Reese James. Now we'll see with Reese James. He's he's the kind of major doubt of the three. Uh, but if Chelsea are missing all five of them, that puts a lot of strain on their defence and wing back situation because Saul has been playing as the left wing back recently and been quite good. Hudson Odoi is their second best right wing back option because Aspie's just not a wing back. But this likely means Aspie and Alonso as the wing backs. Chalaba, Silva, and Rudiger as the centre backs. He might bring Malang Sarr in for this one either. Mm-hmm. I'll be interested to see what kind of team uh, Tuchel puts out. I think he's going to have to go with a fairly strong lineup, though. You know, you don't want to risk going up there, there no, and getting no. embarrassed, and they could get embarrassed if they lose. So I'll go for the Chelsea win. I'll go 2 1. I think it's going to be a really tough game for them, though. Like, Borough will be full of confidence. They've got nothing to lose. They're still going fairly well in the league. They've been really good since Chris Wilder took over. Now, they've had a bit of an inconsistent patch maybe over the last 10, 11 games. Yeah. But compared to how it was before Wilder got there, it's been really impressive. And this cup run is a nice added bonus. I'd be surprised if they end up outside the playoff places right now. They're outside the playoff places only on goals scored, level and points and goal difference with QPR, one point behind Luton, two behind Blackburn, four behind Huddersfield. I think Borough will end up a playoff team. And I think that's a hell of an achievement for Wilder. But I think the FA Cup run stops here. I'll go 2-1 to Chelsea. Yeah, Isaiah Jones against Alonso could be fun. Much Could be a lot of fun. Plus, like nobody wants to be going on a bus to Iceland on a Friday evening to play on a Saturday. Like it's, it's been short weather up here for like a week. Yeah, but like the short weather for you guys is like two foot of snow. So you know these are London soft boys. That's true. And a lot of them obviously are foreign soft boys from you know the fancy parts of Spain and such. It's thirteen degrees up here. Yeah, minus 14 degrees. I mean, like, for you guys, that's warm. For the rest of us, that is below, well below freezing, guy. You know? And you guys, you guys celebrate if you can see your lawns. That two days a year where you can actually see some grass coming through the, you know, the two inches of snow you might have in July, that's the peak of your summer, but you know, we're still early in the year, so you've got the two foot of snow right now. And I, I think that's tough for, you know, getting a bus through that's not going to be easy. So, you know, I, I think it'll be tough, but I do think quality will tell and, and Chelsea will find their way through. Jorginho's never played against Johnny Halton as well. So that'll be fun. Um, who was somehow amazing against Spurs. But we'll move on. Um, what are we on next? We will do the first Premier League game, which isn't on telly for some reason. Leicester against Brentford. Um, Leicester, did they win? No, they lost last night, didn't they? They lost 2-1, but went through. Went through, yeah. 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 They went through by the suntan of Brendan's teeth. (laughs) Uh, That was a pretty big gap to be there. but yeah, I mean, Brentford look a bit better since they've got Ericsson in the side and Tony's came back and obviously scoring all the time, mostly penalties, but goals a goal. Um, Fafana came back last night as well, didn't mm. he? Yeah, so that's a big one. 
he did, and he scored. He scored as well, which was mm. which was a great moment for him. Um, the problem for Leicester is they've got a massive injury situation at the minute. Castanier is out, Evans is out, Vardy is out, Daka and Sionchu are ill. I would expect it's probably COVID. Uh, Danny Ward is out, probably done for the season. Ryan Bertrand is out, potentially done for the season. Albrighton got hurt last night after 11 minutes had to go off, so he'll be out. And Didi picked up a knee injury and Bubakar Samari, Bubakari Samari has a knee injury. So Leicester, Leicester are going to be very much bare bones. That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound good at all. Whereas you look at Brentford, De Silva's suspended, but he's barely played this season anyway. Fosu and Janvier are injured, but they've been injured since like October. Neither of them would be starters anyway. So we'll have a full-strength Brentford team, um, which is a difficult task for Leicester. And Leicester, as we know, the worst team in the league when it comes to defending set pieces, even worse than Leeds. Not as bad as Leeds last season, but worse than them this season. Not great defense defending things in the air. Brentford have a very big team, and on set pieces they send for send forward three lads from the back who are all six foot four and above, plus Janelt from midfielders about six two and Ivan Tony. I can see Brentford getting some joy, but I think Leicester still should have the quality to get through this game. I'll go with a three two Leicester win. I think it'll be a fun game. I think the quality might be lacking in certain areas, especially defensively. But I think it'll be a fun game. I'll go 3-2 Leicester. And um, and another win for Brendan, because he could do with it. He, he really could do with another win here. It's a little bit embarrassing that they've only won nine games all season while losing 11. So I'll give Brendan the win here. But I think for Brentford, even after back-to-back wins, if they can put up a good performance, that'll continue the, the confidence that they've kind of gained from the last couple of games. Yeah, they're not ex- they're not fully safe, but them two wins, it's putting a, it's put a decent amount of daylight for them to get. I'd agree. Um, but yeah, that should be a fun game. I did miss an FA Cup game that is before that. Crystal Palace against Everton is at half 12. I'm not sure if they're all on TV. I know Borough is, and I know the Liverpool game is. Uh, but Crystal Palace, Everton, Dave, I mean, all Premier League affair. Um, Everton off the back of a much needed win, but mm. I know they need, I know they want to win a cup, but priorities? Yeah, priorities dictate that this game should take a back seat, really, uh, to Premier League survival because you could win the FA Cup, but if you go down, you're facing financial ruin. Uh, no Mina. Alan almost certainly suspended. We'll wait and see what happens with that. But I, as I said earlier, I think I think they'll uphold the red card and maybe reduce it to one game suspension, which would be this game, I think. Or do suspensions carry? Or maybe they, suspensions don't carry. I, def- I think they carry now. They changed it for a year, and I think they changed it back, didn't they? I, I know they, they did changed, something silly. I think they changed it back, but sometimes don't, if you. Uh, challenge it. Don't don't the suspension be lifted whilst you're challenging or something, unless it's sorted beforehand. 
Yeah, that's possible. So they could hold it back. So at the moment, we don't know. There hasn't been any sort of announcement made. Paul Joyce just re- reported this morning that they mm-hmm. challenge it and then they challenge the length of it if it's if it's upheld. They, so they we'll, do we'll need Alan in midfield though, because I mean, Dakura is not ca- he's not came back what he was at the start of the season. No, and Tom Davies is injured. And Van der Beek is an attacking midfielder. <laughs> that's it. And he's, he's also out at the minute. He's got he? okay. some sort of virus, as does Jordan Pickford, as does Jared Ban- uh, Um, John Joe Kenny, I think, misses this one suspended. I think he misses this we'll one We'll go suspended. with it. Um, Fabian Delph also had injured. I think Palace win this game. Mm. Palace are a better team than Everton. They're at home. It's the early kickoff on a Sunday. I think Palace win this one. I think they'll be very confident after their performance against City on Monday night. They've had a nice long rest. Everton massively draining game last night. Short turnaround. I'll go for a Palace win. I'll go 2-0 Palace. And Palace's season's basically done because they're not they're already safe. Maybe yeah, mathematically. So that, all they've really got to left to do is enjoy this FA Cup run, yeah, and just try and finish as high as they can in the Premier League. Now the ceiling for them will be ninth. They're mm-hmm. currently two points behind Villa. Villa have a game in hand. Um, so they'll finish somewhere in that ninth to thirteenth range. And I think mm-hmm. Look, I know Hodgson was the master of finishing 13th, but if Palace finished there again this season, it's much better than the se- the seasons where they finished there under Roy. Last season, they finished 14th under Roy. Uh, the season before, actually, they were 14th the last two seasons. Uh, 11th in 17, 18, 18, 19, 12th. So yeah, they're averaging out at about a 13th place finish over the last, even though they haven't actually finished in that road, that position. But these are much better seasons than those. Regardless of points, tallies are ending at the end of the season. Palace have had direction this season. They've had a purpose. They've been a team that plays good football. Well, they rebuilt the whole team as well at the start. And that's exactly it. I mean, last season they finished 11th with 34 points. Mm-hmm. They're already on that. No, sorry. That's this season. I, I'm an idiot. <laughs> last season they finished 14th with 44 points. This season, they're 11th with 34 points. So 10 you know, points in nine games doesn't sound that unrealistic. It doesn't sound unrealistic, I don't think, no. either. So you've got... They've got to play Everton. That's a game that they should win. Uh, they get Newcastle. They get Leeds at home. They get Watford at home. They get Arsenal at home. That's potentially a point in that one for them. Yeah, I don't think 10 points is unrealistic for them. And if they can finish in the same amount of points as last season while playing much better football with a much younger squad that they've rebuilt and had this FA Cup run, I think it sends them into the summer in far better stead than they ever have been before. So I, I'm I'm very hopeful for this Palace team. But yeah, I think they win this one. And an FA Cup semi-final would be massive. A trip to Wembley for Palace, massive. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, next up, then, we do have another FA Cup game. We have Southampton against Man City. I mean, Southampton and Palace have probably been the bogey teams for Man City mm. recently. I mean, I can't. I think we always ask this when it comes to Southampton. Have they drew both their games this year, or did they beat them? I can't remember. No, Southampton and Palace drew. Southampton and Man City drew both games this season. Yeah. 
and Southampton have given really good accounts of themselves. They drew 1-1 at St. Mary's back in January. Uh, Walker Peters scored and then City came back and equalised in like the 65th minute, Mm -hmm. having trailed for the better part of an hour. Um, They played at the Etihad in September and that one ended in a nil-nil draw. Um, and again, City were a little bit fortunate in that one. Palace missed a couple of good chances. So I, I think Saints have shown they can match City this season. Now, this is the cup. It's always a little bit different. But City's focus has got to be split on you know the league title where they've got now got Liverpool press, uh, pressuring them. They've just gotten a very difficult Champions League draw. They've got no Diaz. Cole Palmer is out, and obviously Mendy is out. For Southampton, uh, Lianco is out. Livermento should be back. Brohi should be back. Tella is back. Alex McCarthy is out, but that's fine. Um, I think City will win, but I think it's going to be very difficult. I do think it will be very difficult. I will go for a... 2-1 City win, but I think they might even go behind in this game. Southampton are three losses. It smells like a Southampton win to me. <laughs> that's, see, that's the thing. You just don't know. They're so <laughs> unpredictable with these type of things. They'll they'll string together a run, of, a run of wins. They'll have a game coming up and you think, oh, they're definitely going to win that. And they'll get walloped. Like against Villa. They should have beaten Villa. They got walloped by Villa. And then, as you said, they'll come off, you know, a run of defeats against City, you'll be like, oh, they're going to lose this one. And they'll turn around and win the game. So I'll go for the City win, but nothing nothing would shock me in this one. Mm. It'd be weird. I mean, Man City's obviously squad is very, very empty. So it'd be interesting to see if he plays any youngsters or anything like that. That's exactly it. He Depleted. might have to. Yeah, be interesting. Uh, but we have the last Premier League game before we get onto the last FA Cup game. Probably the biggest one, yeah, Spurs against West Ham. Obviously, mm. quite pivotal in the fourth place chase. Uh, obviously, both had mid- midweek games as well. West Ham is probably a bit more uh, physically taxing with the extra time and the emotional yeah. stuff. Um, how do you see this one? Because Spurs, where they what their patterns win, lose, win, lose. They won, so uh, I mean. Logic, it's a loss. Yeah, logic would say defeat for Spurs, but they're yeah. at home. They've had an extra day's rest. And like you said, West Ham had to play extra time, a lot of emotion in the game against a very, very good team as well. Whereas Spurs, I mean, Brighton just weren't weren't particularly good and Spurs did have it fairly comfortable. Uh, no Sessegnon, no Skip, no Tanganga. No Sufel, no Bowen, no Ogbonna. It's This is a massive game for Spurs because a win here, if Arsenal don't pick up three points, a win here can put them either level in points with Arsenal or one point behind Arsenal. And they still have to play Arsenal at home. Now, Arsenal would have the game in hand, but as I've said before, that game in hand is against Chelsea away. And Spurs have a, a more favourable run-in than Arsenal do. So this is a big, big game for Spurs. It's also a big game for West Ham. If West Ham win and Arsenal lose, West Ham can go above them. If Arsenal draw, they'll be one point behind. Again, Arsenal have two games in hand. 
But again, they're Chelsea away and Spurs away, so they're very difficult. So it's not necessarily a must win for both teams, but what it is is a must not lose. Mm-hmm. Neither team can really afford to lose this game. And with that in mind, I think I'm going to go for the draw. I think I'm going to go for a 1-1 draw. But if a team is to win it, I do think it will be Spurs because that's just how they are. They're just they're just a weird team who tend to get, get it right for certain games. And against a tired West Ham, maybe they get it right. But I'll, I'll give West Ham the benefit of the doubt and I'll go for a 1-1 draw. Yeah, and regardless of Spurs' pattern, they do seem to have finally settled in on a team. I mean, Doherty at right back. Sessignon probably was a right wing back, I should say. Sessignon at left wing back, but he's obviously injured with Regulon playing. But the front three seems to be finally, well, not finally, but Kulishevsky's adding some more balance where Mora wasn't really clicking with them mm. too. Um, but yeah, and you've got that, that pairing in midfield is working really well mm. now as well, Heusberg and Bentoncourt, up against Rice and Suchek, who are going to be very, very tired because mm-hmm. they got through mountains of work last night. Um, you're talking me into picking Spurs, but I'm going to stick with the draw. Yeah. Stick with the draw. Just a defence to fix for Spurs, probably. Yeah. Um, or, well, maybe a couple in the attack and stuff like that. Can't ill buy some old people. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but West Ham, yeah, their season's been great. However, it goes really. But last game is an FA Cup game, which is Forest against Liverpool. Now, dear, I mean, obviously, this isn't a Liverpool podcast, but. There is Hillsborough ties to this and stuff like that, but we won't get into them on this because it's probably one for AI rather than EPL. But Forest against Liverpool, this was the rivalry of English football in the what was it, mid to late 80s. Do you want to explain a bit about that for people who are a bit younger like me? Because Forest is just, well, it's always been a championship team for me. So it actually dates back 10 years before that. It goes back to the late 70s. Right, okay. Uh, Brian Clough takes over at, over at Forest. Forest are in what we now call the championship at the time, the old Division 2. And Brian Clough takes them into the Premier League, in, into what's now the Premier League, then Division 1. Liverpool are the undisputed top dogs at the time. And Brian Clough wins the first division with the team he's just brought up from the championship. Uh, he then goes on to win back-to-back European Cups when Liverpool are the team who win, you know, four European Cups in like an eight-year span. This is at a time when English football is really dominant. Villa also win a European Cup in this spell. So it kind of begins there. Um, Clough, of course... Very, very brash, very, very open about the fact that he thinks he is the best manager in the world, that his team are the best team in the world. And that's very much against what Liverpool were. Liverpool were a very, you know, humble team. Bob Paisley is the manager, never really said a whole lot of much. Liverpool kept themselves to to themselves. They just enjoyed great success. So Liverpool win the European Cup in 77 and 78. And then Forrest take it from them in 79 and 80. Liverpool bounce back in 81. So you get five straight years of of English clubs. Then Villa win it in 82. Six straight years. Then Hamburg win it. And funnily enough, if I'm not mistaken, 
that Hamburg team. There's definitely an English tie to that Hamburg team. I can't remember what it is. I know Kevin Keegan had yeah. gone there, but he'd left and gone to Newcastle with him. They won the European Cup. It may well have been that he was part of their rise. I know there's some English connection to it somewhere. Um, and then Liverpool win it again the following year in 84. So between 77 and 84, Liverpool win it four, uh, four times. Forest win three, Villa win one, and Hamburg are the only non-English team. I think that's so, Hamburg final. Wasn't it at Wembley, I think? Uh, no, it was in Greece. Wasn't it? Uh, let me have a quick gander. Um, in the semi, no semi finals teams that year either. So, Liverpool and Liverpool and Villa, Liverpool as English champions, Villa as reigning European cup holders, both go out at the quarter final stage. Very, very disappointing for both teams. Um, and that's the only year there's no English team winning it from in an eight-year spell. But Forrest, Forrest were very brash. Forrest, not, not so much the players, but but Brian Clough. Yeah. And in that round of 32, Forrest beat Liverpool. So Liverpool are back-to-back European Cup holders, and they face Forrest in the round of 32, and Forrest beat them. They beat them 2-0 at home. The game at Anfield ends in 0-0, and that's kind of the real start of the rivalry. Right, okay. And it just carried from there, and a lot of it was Clough, and a lot of it was things that he would say, and he wasn't always complimentary about Liverpool as a city and a fan base. And it culminates, unfortunately, at Hillsborough. And things that Brian Clough says afterwards now i'm not going to go over them i'm not going to repeat them but he bought into the lies that had been put forward by the british government and certain newspapers and that beforehand i think there was a, a respect for clough and almost an admiration in the same way that you know the way you'd look at Mourinho and you'd think god i hate him but i think i'd love him as my manager mm-hmm it was very similar with Clough. And right. a lot of what Mourinho does is what Brian Clough used to do. Brian Clough was incredibly brash. He would just say things to get a reaction. He'd say things to throw opposition managers off. He was not shy about calling teams out for what he perceived as cheating. He once remarked that while he didn't believe he was the best manager in the world, he was certainly in the top one and things like that. So Brian Clough was just was that personality who was very different to what Liverpool had had with Paisley. But there were some similarities between him and Shankly, just that sort of bigger-than-life personality. But with Shankly, it was all about how great my team is, and with Clough, it was all about how great he was. Um, So that's kind of where the rivalry started in the late 70s. It works its way through in the late 90s. Forrest are having some success in Cups, but... They're no longer the force they were. Clough is very much on the decline. We get into the Premier League era. It's the first game televised on Sky during the Premier League era, an early kickoff on a Saturday, and Forrest beat Liverpool. Uh, Teddy Sheringham and Brian Clough up front for Forrest. So that's basically it. And then, like you said, Forrest sort of dropped off. 
They went down. They came back up. They had Collymore. We bought Collymore off them, and then they went back down again. And that's kind of where it ended. Um, and there hasn't been a whole lot of much since. But for fans from the late 70s through the 80s, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And there's kind of a running joke among the Liverpool fan base where it's only the owl fellas that really remember the rivalry. And for me, I don't remember the rivalry. I was only a kid in the mm-hmm. 80s. so But I, I was told of the rivalry and I've kind of researched the rivalry since. And obviously I've done a lot of research on Clough and stuff as well. It sounds like a um, bit like Chelsea when they Rafa Jose. Very much so. Very, mm. very much so. Yeah, that's that's a really good comparison where Chelsea sort of were this new noisy neighbour. Now, obviously, at the time, we weren't the successful team that we were, you know, back in the 70s and 80s. But we did win the European Cup that first year. And that definitely drove them a little bit mad. Um, but yeah, I mean, Rafa similar kind of personality to Bob Paisley, uh, you know, in terms of how quiet and humble he is and how, mm-hmm. how much of a nice man he is. Now, Bob was a lot better with the team in terms of his relationships with individual players, whereas Rafa could be quite cold towards players because Rafa learned very early because he did a sort of apprenticeship in, in management at Real Madrid. It's a business. Don't get too attached to players because when it comes time to sell them, you don't want to be selling your friend. You want to be selling an asset. So he kind of distanced himself from players early in his career. Whereas with Paisley, he'd wrap the arm around them. He'd be best mates with them and he'd just sell them. You know, he, he wasn't one who was there for sentiment, but he would still have that great relationship with them. He was one of the few that struck that balance perfectly. And yeah, Clough, Clough and Mourinho cut from the same cloth entirely. And genuinely, they will go down as two of the greatest managers ever. But at the same time, you would say that they're, they, they clung on longer than they should. Mm-hmm. Let's put it like that. They clung on longer than they should. You look at, at what Clough did in his career, and he won the league title with Derby. Then he won the uh, went to Leeds, went to Leeds, failed massively at Leeds. Had a, had a spell at Brighton between Derby and Leeds, and just didn't like living that far south. Mm-hmm. Uh, failed at Leeds, was basically out of management for you know he had the, what sixty days at Leeds, and I think he was at at Brighton for like seven months or something. Um, but he didn't have like a full-time job between Derby and Forest because he was still commuting down to Brighton at times, um, something they're quite bitter about. But yeah, he goes to Forest in 75, finds them in the second division, uh, brings them up, actually finished, I think, second in the division to bring them up in six, uh, 76, 77, wins the first division in 77, 78 and the League Cup. The following season retains the League Cup and wins the European Cup. Then the following season wins the European Cup again. So he's he has incredible success for three straight years there. And then nothing. Then Forrest just kind of started to exist and became more of a, a mid-table sort of team. Mm-hmm. Won a couple of League Cups at the end of the 90s, 89 and 90. 
or at the end of the 80s, rather. And a lot of people thought what Brian Clough should have done was he should have walked away from Forrest mm-hmm. in like 82, 83, when it was clear that they weren't going to win any more European Cups or compete at that elite level. He should probably have walked away and gone and done something else, maybe taken a year off and then had a fresh start. But he loved Forest. He loved living in the area. They've named the road that connects Nottingham and Derby after him. He's the only man I know of that has statues in three cities. He's got one in Derby. He's got one in Far- in Nottingham. And I believe he's got one in Middlesbrough as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, th- this is a guy who made a massive impact everywhere. You know, he was a great player for Borough, a good player for Sunderland. His goal-scoring record is phenomenal, 267 goals in 296 games, um, but obviously largely second division football. Uh, but still, really, really good player, good manager, Hartlepool, great manager with Derby, failed at, at Brighton because it was far too far south for him. Hmm. Failed at Leeds. He failed at Leeds because he walked in and, and tried to Don change Revy, yeah. a very strong culture that Don Revy had put mm-hmm. in place. And he basically told all the players that they'd won all their medals by cheating and they could throw them all in the bin because they weren't worth anything. And he just he just wound everybody up and it was just it was the wrong club, the wrong fit for him. The Damned United's a good film on this. It is a good film. Yeah. It is a good film. The book look, it it is it's based on on real life. It's not an autobiography, it's not based on fact. There is some uh, creative license taking by the author. And I think there's been one or two lawsuits about the book and the film. Right, okay. That certain people portrayed in it, including John Giles, have brought and I think had them settled. So, you know, there is a bit of creative license, but it is a very good film. It's a very, very good film. But what he did at Forest is genuinely maybe the greatest achievement of anybody in the history of English football to take over a club that were, you know, imagine some, imagine Steve Cooper taking over Forrest and getting them promoted this season, winning the Premier League next season, and then winning back-to-back European Cups in the seasons after that. Like, that's what we're talking about here. That's what Brian Clough did. Like, you couldn't even comprehend somebody doing that now taking over a championship club bringing them up winning the top flight winning back-to-back Europe. i mean winning european back-to-back european cups by itself is nigh on impossible only real madrid have done it in if what get, if you get top half now it's, it's yeah if, if you come up as a newly promoted team and finish ninth they load you you get around you know, the next year that's also part of it but like he he did incredible things and, and that that's but that's where the rivalry came from. It was largely Clough when he was at Derby, Leeds were the best team in the country, and Clough took aim at Leeds. So Clough, when he went to Forest, scanned the landscape, Liverpool are the best team in the country. Bob Paisley is not the type who'll bite back publicly, so I can say whatever I want, and very little is gonna come back. It was the same with Leeds. Now there was a slight thing with Leeds where they played, it's it's shown in the Damned United, they played in a cup game and he felt Revy snubbed them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were in the second division at the time as well. So again, he's done it twice. He took Derby from the second division into the top flight and then won the league with them 
I think he had a year or two in between when they got promoted and when they won the league, but still. Um, but he, that's part of that. But it was also the fact that Revy was never really going to say much back. Revy was very much about... Revy had a little bit of Mourinho about him as well in that Revy would really kind of batten down the hatches, you know, get all our men in the foxhole in August. It's us against the world. Everyone hates us. It's all we can rely on is ourselves. So let's go out there and win and prove everybody wrong. Mourinho is very good at that kind of siege mentality as well. And I think Clough learned a lot from watching Revy do stuff like that. Because when he went to Forest, it was something he did as well. He was outspoken and brash, but internally, he told all his players, they don't rate you. They all look down on you. They don't think you're good enough. And you, you hear a lot of his former players talking about the team talks he'd give them or the chats he'd have with them, like in the middle of the week, he'd go and he'd grab one of them and he'd bring them out and he'd say, look, I've, I've been hearing from people in the media and they're, they're all saying you're not as good as such and such in that Man United team. And they might not be playing United for a month, but he'd be telling them these things to plant the seed of, you know, well, I've got to go and show Man United what I can do. And all of a sudden, come United game in four weeks, this fella's absolutely hyped to, to the ceiling and he just goes out and has a man of the match performance. And he was just brilliant at that sort of manipulation. And then obviously the other thing with Clough, and I know we've gotten a tangent here, but I just, just he just fascinates yeah. me, is, is what you hear like about him later in his career and just the strangest things he did. Like, you know, he obviously developed quite a serious drinking problem as well. And he turned up at a couple of different things to sign players and he'd be drunk and he'd go to their houses and he'd be like completely off his rocker. And he'd be out in their garden sniffing their flowers and stuff and he's meant to be in negotiating <laughs> contracts. Or like there's, there's a, um, Mark Crossley has done a couple of podcasts. If you just Google, or sorry, go on YouTube and look up Mark Crossley, Brian Clough stories. Some of them are just so funny. They're just brilliant. Like Mark Crossley was a young goalkeeper who got his chance in the first team and did really well. And Clough thought he was getting too big for his boots. So he told him to turn up at his house early on a Sunday morning. And he made him go and play for a Sunday league team that his son was managing, not Nigel, the other son, just to kind of bring him back down to earth of, yeah, you're playing for Forrest on the Saturday, but I have control of your career and I'll stick you in Sunday League. In the end, Forrest, the Sunday League team, I think, got fined 50 quid for playing a player who wasn't registered to them. And then Clough made Crossley pay the fine. <laughs> but again, just to sort of bring him back down to earth. And there's a good story about um, Wimbledon turn up to play Forrest at the city ground. And Clough sends one of the coaches down or one of the players or something down to tell them to turn their music down. And they go down and Vinnie Jones opens the door. And this is when Forrest with the full-on crazy gang. And he says, hey, Mr. Clough would like you to turn the music down. And he turns it down. And as soon as your man's back up at the Forrest dressing room, he turns it back up. So he sends the same fella back down again. And he says, now make sure you say please this time. So your man goes down. Can you turn the music down, please? It goes down. He comes back up. And Clough just says, ah, enough's enough. He goes down himself, opens the door, walks into the dressing room, picks up the stereo, 
bounces it off the ground and smashes it and says, <laughs> now play your music, Wimbledon, and strolls back up the corridor. And this is 10 minutes before they're due to go out and play. Like, he was just a, a different breed of character. But, yeah, the, the rivalry started in the late 70s, moved through the 80s, kind of ended, I suppose, ended with Hillsborough, really, because of what that symbolised and, and how much... Yeah sort of sympathy there was towards Liverpool and everybody who was at that game as well, including Forrest, because obviously very traumatic for Forrest fans and the Forrest players to be at that and be part of that. Um, and yeah, I mean, there was a bit in the 90s, in the early 90s, and obviously we bought Collymore off them, but I am hoping, I have to say, that we repeat the Collymore purchase and, and do go for Brennan Johnson, who's a player I very much like. I think he's one that could be really, really special. Uh, but yeah, that is that is that. I am going to go for a Liverpool win in this game. Liverpool will be without Trent Alexander-Arnold, who's picked up a hamstring injury. International uh, injury, I like it. Yeah, nice international injury. Hopefully there's a couple more picked up. Klopp says Alisson will play. I'm, I'm guessing we're going to see Joe Gomez at right back, Kanate at centre-back next to Van Dijk, and Costa Simicus at left-back. And it wouldn't surprise me if Virgil gets a little international injury as well. Although as Dutch captain, maybe he won't be on board with that. Um, I think we'll see a fairly strong midfield. I could see it being something like Curtis Jones, Jordan Henderson, Naby Keita mm-hmm. as the midfield three. And then I think he'll play Firmino and Jota with probably Taki Minamino as the one coming in. Although it wouldn't surprise me if he starts Diaz. If he goes... Yeah, Jota, Firmino, Diaz because the, Af- the Afcon lads play each other, don't they? In this break, I think. Yes, they do yeah. indeed. So, so Salah and Mane uh, go off and play each other twice during this break uh, for a place at the World Cup, and obviously Mane came out on, on the winning side in the Afcon final. Uh, we'll wait and see how this one goes. You'd expect Senegal will have too much for Egypt, mm-hmm. but the positive of that, the big positive of that is that Salah might not have to go to the World Cup then next season. So if Salah gets the contract signed, he's not going to a World Cup, well, then he gets a nice extended break in the middle of the season while everyone else is off kicking lumps of each other in Qatar and Salah is absolutely rosy sitting at home. So that's a positive. That's a potential positive there. And if it's not him, it could be Mane. Now, I think Mane will be gone next season, but um, I think I think, I think think Senegal will probably be Egypt and that. Um, just lastly on Forest, this is a good Forest team. There's some really good players there. Uh, the two I really like are Spence, uh, but he's obviously owned by Middlesbrough mm-hmm. and and Brennan Johnson. But like Joe Worrell's a good player. James Garner, who's in on loan from Manchester United, is a very very good young midfielder. So they won't be easily beaten. Steve Cooper is a really good manager, and he's done a great job since taking over. And uh, if he can win this, this will be his crowning glory. He did beat Arsenal, or they did beat Arsenal. They also beat um, Leicester and Huddersfield to get to this stage. So they'll be confident, and they're at home, but I still think Liverpool will have too much for them. And that's the last game, I believe. And that is us. That is us. So we will see you on Monday. Enjoy your weekends. And don't do anything silly. Just never do anything silly, but enjoy your weekends. Take care. Bye-bye.
Social Podcast Network.